28. Hope of quieting the son of the sleepless. Columpsion was in constant communication with the dressing table now for moist sugar to stay the hiccup and for dill water to allay the stomach ache. To save his little cherub from convulsions, twice was he converted into a night patrol, with the thermometer below zero a bad fire, with a large slate in it, and an empty coal scuttle. Sir Zoological Gardens, Variety, say our school copy books, is charming, hence this must be the most charming place of amusement in London. The annexed list of entertainments was produced on Tuesday last, when were added to the usual passe temps, a flower and fruit show, wild beasts in cages, flowers of all colors and sizes in pots, enormous cabbages, broad didnag apples, immense sticks of rhubarb, a view of Rome, a brass band, a grand Roman cavalcade passing over the bridge of St. Angelo, a deafening park of artillery, and an enchanting series of pyrotechnic wonders, such as catarine wheels, flower pots, and rockets, an illumination of street feeders, blazes of blue fire, showers of steel filings, and a grand blow-up of the castle of St. Angelo. Such are the entertainments provided by the proprietor. The company which numbered at least from five to six thousand gave them even greater variety. Numerous picnic parties were seated about on the grass, sandwiches, bottled stout, and with reverence be it spoken more potent liquors seemed to be highly relished, especially by the ladies. Ices were sold at a pastry cook's stall, where a continued feud a joy of ginger pop was kept up during the whole afternoon and evening. In short, the scene was one of complete alfresco enjoyment, how could it be otherwise? The flowers delighted the eye, Mr. Godfrey's well-trained band to a wit. Beethoven's Symphony in C minor, with all the fiddle passages beautifully executed upon clarionets, charmed the ear, and the edibles and drinkables aforesaid the palate. Under such a press of agreeables, the Surrey Zoological Gardens well deserve the name of an Englishman's paradise. On the science of electioneering, to the progress of science and the rapid march of moral improvement the most effectual spur that has ever been applied was the Reform Bill. Before the introduction of that measure, electioneering was a simple process. Hardly deserving the name of an art, it has now arrived at the rank of a science, the great beauty of which island that, although complicated in practice, it is most easy of acquirement. Under the old system burrows were bought by wholesale. Scott and Lot, now the traffic is done by retail. Formerly there was but one seller, at present there must be some thousands at least all to be bargained with, all to be bought. Thus the agency business of electioneering has wonderfully increased, and so have the expenses. In fact, an agent is to an election what the mainspring is to a watch, the island in point of fact, the real returning officer. His importance is not less than the talents and tact he is obliged to exert. He must take a variety of shapes, must tell a variety of lies, and perform the part of an animated contradiction. He must benevolently pay the taxes of one man who can't vote while in arrear, and cruelly serve notices of ejectment upon another. Though he can show his last quarter's receipt he must attend temperance meetings, and make opposition electors to drunk to vote. He must shake hands with his greatest enemy and pawn off upon him lasting proofs of friendship, and silver paper hints which way to vote. He must make flaming speeches about principle, puns about interest, and promises concerning everything, to everybody. He must never give less than five pounds for being shorn by an honest and independent voter, who never shaves for less than two pence nor under ten, for a four and ninepenny goss to an uncompromising header. He must present ear rings to wives, bracelets to daughters, and be continually broaching a hog's head for fathers, husbands, and brothers. 
he must get up fancy balls, and give away fancy dresses to a ladies whom he fancies especially if they fancy his candidate, and their husbands fancy them, he must plan charities, organize mobs, causing free schools to be knocked up, and opponents to be knocked down, finally, he must do all these acts, and spend all these sums purely for the good of his country, for, although a select committee of the house tries the validity of the election though they prove bribery, intimidation, and treating to everybody's satisfaction, yet they always find out that the candidate has had nothing to do with it that the agent is not his agent, but has acted solely on patriotic grounds, by which he is often so completely a martyr, that the island after all, actually prosecuted for bribery, by order of the very house which he has helped to fill, and by the very man as a part of the parliament he has himself returned, that this great character might not be lost to posterity. We furnish our readers with the portrait of the Statistical Society. This full society will shortly publish its report, and, though we have not seen it, we are enabled to guess with tolerable accuracy what will be the contents of it, in the first place. We shall be told the number of pins picked up in the course of the day, by a person walking over a space of 15 miles round London, with the number of those not picked up, an estimate of the class of persons that have probably dropped them with the use they were being put to when they actually fell, and how they have been applied afterwards. The report will also put the public in possession of the number of pop boys employed in London, what is the average number of pops they carry out, and what is the gross weight of metal in the pops brought back again. This interesting head will include a calculation of how much beer is consumed by children who are sent to fetch it in jugs, and what is the whole amount of malt liquor, the value of which reaches the producer's pocket, while the mouth of the consumer, and not that of the party paying for it, receives the sole benefit. There are also to be published with the report elaborate tables, showing how many quarts of milk are spilt in the course of a year in serving customers, what proportion of water it contains, and what are the average ages and breed of the dogs who lap it up, and how much is left and lapped up to be absorbed in the atmosphere. When this valuable report is published, we shall make copious extracts. A novel entertainment, Drury Lane Theatre, Novelty is certainly the order of the day. Anything that does not deviate from the old beaten track meets with little encouragement from the present race of amusement seekers, and, consequently, does not pay the entrepreneur. Nudity in public adds fresh charms to the orchestra, and red fire and crackers have become absolutely essential to harmony. Acting upon this principle, Signor Vinafra gave we admire the term of fancy dress ball at Drury Lane Theatre on Monday evening last upon a plan hitherto unknown in England, but possibly, like the majority of deceptive delusions now so popular, of continental origin, the whole of the evening's entertainment took place in cabs and hackney coaches, and those vehicles performed several perfectly new and intricate figures in Bridges Street, and the other thoroughfares adjoining the theatres, the music provided for the occasion appeared to be an organ piano, which performed incessantly at the corner of Bow Street, during the evening. Most of the elite of Hart Street and Street Giles's graced the animated pavement as spectators. So perfectly successful was the whole affair on the word of laughing hundreds who came away saying they had never been so amused in their lives that we hear it is an agitation never to attempt anything of the kind again. Done again. Done. The bailless barrister complained to his friend Charles Phillips that upon the last occasion he had the happiness of meeting Miss Burdette Coots on the Marine Parade. Notwithstanding all he has gone through for her, she would not condescend to take the slightest notice of him, so far from offering anything in the shape of consolation, 
the witty barrister remarked, upon my soul, her conduct was in perfect keeping with her situation, for what on earth could be more in unison with a sea view than it is well known that the piers of Westminster Bridge have considerably sunk since their first erection, they are not the only piers, in the same neighborhood that have become lowered in the position they once occupied, assertion of the unintelligible, O.R. Okay, flights at an exordium, flight the first, he who widely, yet essentially, expatiates in those in all way sloping fields of metaphysical investigation which perplex whilst they captivate, and bewilder whilst they allure, cannot evitate the perception of perception's fallibility, nor avoid the conclusion if that can be called a conclusion to which, it may be said, there are no premises extant that the external senses are but deceptive media of interior mental communication, it behoves the ardent, youthful explorator, therefore, to, and see, and see, flight the second, in the Promethean persecutions which assail the insurgent mentalities of the youth and mourning vigor of the inexpressible human soul, when, flushed with the Aeolian light, and, as it were, beat with those lustrous dews which the eternal aurora lets fall from her melodious lip, if it escape living from the beat of the vulture no fable here, then, indeed, it may aspire to, and see, and see, flight the third, if, with wax and a carrion wing, we seek to ascend to that skiey elevation whence only can the understretching regions of an impassive mutability be satisfactorily contemplated, and if, in our heterogeneous ambition, aspirant above self-capacity, we approach too near the flammifrous titan, and so become pinionless, and reduced again to an earthly prostration, what marvel is it, that, and see, and see, flight the fourth, when the perennial Faustus, ever resident in the questioning spirit of immortal man, attempts his first outbreak into the domain of a limited inquiry, unless he take heed of the needfully cautious prudentialities of mundane observance, there infallibly attends him a fatal Mephistophelian influence, of which the malign tendency, from every conclusion of eventuality, is to plunge him into perilous vast cloud waves of the dream inhabited vague. Let, then, the young student of infinity, and see, and see, flight the fifth, enarched within the boundless empyrean of thought, starry with wonder, and constellate with investigation, that one time obfuscated in the abysm born vapors of doubt, that another, radiant with the sun fires of faith made perfect by fruition, it can amaze no considerative fraction of humanity, that the explorer of the indefinite, the searcher into the not to be defined, should, at dreary intervals, invent dim, plastic riddles of his own identity, and hesitate at the awful shrine of that dread interrogatory alternative reality, or dream, the steeply pondering, let the eager beginner in the at once linear and circumferent course of philosophico-metaphysical contemplativeness, introductively assure himself that, and see, and see, final flight, as, in the silence and overshadowing of that night whose fitful meteoric fires only herald the descent of a superficial fame into a lasting oblivion, the imbecile and unavailing resistance which is made against the doom must often excite our pity for the pampered child of market-gilded popularity, and as, it is not with such feelings that we behold the dark thraldom and long-suffering of true intellectual strength, of which the, brief, though frequent, soundings beneath the earthly pressure will be heard even amidst the din of flaunting crowds, or the solemn conclaves of commonplace minds, of which the obscured head will often shed forth the sending beams that can only be lost in eternity, and of which the mighty struggles to upheave its own weight, and that of the superincumbent mass of prejudice, envy, ignorance, folly, or uncongenial force, 
must ever ensure the deepest sympathy of all those who can appreciate the spirit of its qualities, let the initiative skyward struggles towards the zenith abysses of the inane and palpable, and see, and see, and see, and see, and see, and see. Dramatic Authors Theatre, September 16th, 1841. Humane Suggestion, Master Punch, Mind Yees. I've been to see these here secretins at the English of Peru's, and thinks, mind yees, they ain't by no means the very best Cheshire, but what I want to know is this here why don't they give that venerable old gentleman, Mr. Martinesi, the hungry cardinal, something to eat, he is a continually calling out for some of his country's wheel, which, I dare say, were very good and he don't never get so much as a sandbike during the whole of his life and death I mentioned these satins, because, Mind yees, it ain't wary kind of none on em. I remains, Mr. Punch, sir, yours truly, D.F. Berg. Dialogue between the statue of George Canning and Sir Robiardi Peel. The new premier was taking a solitary stroll the other evening through Palace Yard, meditating upon the late turn which had brought the Tories to the top of the wheel and the wigs to the bottom, and pondering on the best ways and means of keeping his footing in the slippery position that had cost him so much labor to attain. While thus employed, with his eyes fixed on the ground, and his hands buried in his breeches pockets, he heard a voice at no great distance, calling in familiar tone, Bob, Bob, I say, Bob, the alarmed baronet stopped, and looked around him to discover the speaker, when, casting his eyes upon the statue of George Canning in the enclosure of Westminster Abbey, he was astonished to perceive it nodding its head at him, like the statue in, Don Giovanni, in a, how de do kind of way, Sir Robert, who, since his introduction to the palace, has grown perilously polite, took off his hat, and made a low bow to the figure, statue, bah, no nonsense, bah, with me, put on your hat, and come over here, close to the railings, while I had a little private confab with you, so, you have been called in at last, Peel, yes. Her Majesty has done me the honor to command my services, and actuated by a sincere love of my country, I obeyed the wishes of my royal mistress, and accepted office, though, if I had consulted my own inclinations, I should have preferred the quiet path of private statue. Humbug, you forget yourself. Bob, you are not now at Tamworth, or in the house, but talking to an old hand that knows every move on the political board, you need have no disguise with me. Come. Be candid for once, and tell me, what are your intentions, Peel? Why, then, candidly, to keep my place as long as I can statue, undoubtedly, that is the first duty of every patriotic minister, but the means, Bob, Peel, oh, can't, can't nothing but can't, I shall talk of my feeling for the wants of the people, while I pick their pockets, bestow my pity upon the manufacturers, while I tax the bread that feeds their starving families, and proclaim my sympathy with the farmers, while I help the arrogant landlords to grind them into the dust. Statue. Ah, I perceive you understand the true principles of legislation. Now, once really felt what you only feign. In my time, I attempted to carry out my ideas of amelioration, and wanted to improve the moral and physical condition of the people. But Peel, you failed. Few gave you credit for purely patriotic motives and still fewer believed you to be sincere in your professions. Now, my plan is much easier, and safer. Give the people fair promises they don't cost much but nothing besides promises, the moment you attempt to realize the hopes you have raised. 
that moment you raise a host of enemies against yourself, statue, but if you make promises, the nation will demand a fulfillment of them, peel, I had an answer ready for all comers, wait a while, tease a famous soother for all impatient grumblers, it kept the Whigs in office for ten years, and I see no reason why it should not serve our turn as long, depend upon it, wait a while, is the great secret of government, statue, ah, I believe you are right, I now see that I was only a novice in the trade of politics, by the by, Bob, I don't at all like my situation here, tea's really very uncomfortable to be exposed to all weather scorched in summer, and frost nipped in winter, though I am only a statue, I feel that I ought to be protected, Peel, undoubtedly, my dear sir, what can I do for you, statue, why, I want to get into the abbey, St. Paul's, or Drury Lane, anywhere out of the open air, Peel, say no more it shall be done, I am only too happy to have it in my power to serve the statue of a man to whom his country is so deeply indebted, statue, but when shall it be done, Bob, tomorrow, Peel, not precisely tomorrow, but statue, next week, then, Peel, I can't say, but don't be impatient rely on my promise, and wait a while, wait a while, my dear friend, good night, statue, oh, confound your wait a while, I see I have nothing to expect, the beauty of brass. Tom Duncombe declares he never passes MacPhail's imitative gold mart without thinking of Bendy single quote Israeli single quote ass speeches, as both of them are so confoundedly full of fantastic punch at the Art Union exhibition again limited space in our last number prevented our noticing any other than the sleeping beauty, and, as there are many other humorous productions possessing equal claims to our attention in the landscape and other departments of art, we shall herein endeavor to point out their characteristics more for the advantage of future purchasers than for the better and further edification of those whose meager notions and tastes have already been shown, and as the royal academicians, par courtesy, demand our first notice, we shall, having wiped off Dean Clive's, are now proceed, baton in hand, to make a few pokes at W.F. Witherington, are upon his work entitled, Winchester Tower, Windsor Castle, from Romney Lock. This is a subject which has been handled many times within our recollection, by artists of less name, less fame, and less pretensions to notice, if we accept the undeniable fact of their displaying infinitely more ability in their representations of the subject, than can by any possibility be discovered in the one by W.F. Witherington, R.A. If our remarks were made with an affectionate eye to the young ladies of the sad album-loving school, we should assuredly style this, a duck of a picture, one after their own hearts treated in mild and indisturbed tones of yellow, blue, and pink and what yellows, what blues, and what pinks, some kind, superintending genius of landscape painting evidently prepared the scene for W.F. Withering, R.A., it displays nothing of the vulgar everyday look of nature, as seen at Romney Lock, or any other spot, not a pebble out of its place not a leaf deranged here are bright amber trees, and blue metallic towers, prepared gravel walks, and figures nicely cleaned and bleached to suit, it island in truth, the most genteel landscape ever looked on, nothing but absolute needlework can create more wonderment, fie, fie, get thee hence, W.F. Witherington, R.A., just placed over the last mentioned picture, and, doubtlessly so arranged that the gentleman should find that, although his bright specimen of mild murder may be adjudged the worst in the collection, Still there are others worthy of being classed in the same order of oddities. Behold number 19, entitled, Landscape Evening J.F. Gilbert, 
and selected by Mr. John Bullock from the Royal Academy, Watson a name, in the charitable hope that there is a chance of this purchaser being combed down in the course of time, after the same manner that pictures are, and, by that process, display more sobriety, we most humbly offer to Mr. B. our modest judgment upon his selection not upon his choice, but upon the thing chosen, that it is a landscape we gloomily admit, but that it represents, evening, we steadily deny, the exact period of the day, after much puzzling and deliberation, we cannot arrive at, one thing yet we are assured of that it has been painted in company with a clock that was either too fast or too slow, the composition, which has very much the appearance of the bygone century, is a prime selection from the finest parts of those very serene views to be found adorning the lowest interiors of wash-hand basins, with a dash from the works of Smith of Chichester, whose mental elevation in his profession was only surpassed by the high finish of his apple trees, and the elaborate nothingness of his general choice of subject, in the foreground of the picture, the artist has, however, most aptly introduced the two vagabonds invariably to be seen idling in the foregrounds of landscapes of this class to rascally scouts who have put in appearance from time immemorial, they are here just as in the works alluded to, the one sitting, the other of course standing, and courteously bending to receive the remarks of his friend, by the side of the stream, which flows through or rather takes up the middle of the picture, and immediately opposite to the two everlastings, is a little plain-looking agriculturist, who appears to be watching them. He is in the careless and ever-admitted picturesque position of leaning over a garden fence, but whether the invariables are aware of the little gentleman, and are consequently conversing in an undertone, we leave every beholder to speculate and settle for himself, behind the worthy small farmer, and coming from the door of his residence, most cleverly introduced, is his wife we know it to represent the wife, from the clear fact of the lady's appearance being typical of the gentleman's, who is in the act of observing that the children are waiting his presence at table, and adding, no doubt, that he had better come in and assist her in the cabbage and bacon duties of the repast, than lose his time and annoy the family. We must now draw the spectator from the above-mentioned objects to a little piscatorial sportsman, who, apart from them, and in the retirement of his own thoughts upon worms, ground bait, and catgut, lends his aid, together with a lively little amateur waterman, paddling about in a little boat, selfishly built to hold none other than himself a hill rising in the middle ground, and two or three minor additions of the same towards the distance, carefully dotted with trees, after the fashion of a ready-made portable park from the toy depot in the low for arcade to be hives, a water mill, some majestic smoke, something that looks like a skein of thread thrown over a mountain, and the memorable chiaroscuro, form the interesting episodes of this glorious essay in the epic pastoral, S.Y.N.C.R.E.I.C. Literature Observations on the Epic Poem of Giles Scroggins and Molly Brown Resumed, The Fatal Operation of the Unavoidable, Ever Impending, Ruthless Shears of the Stern Controller of Human Destiny, and Curtailer of Human Life The Action by Which, Fate Scissors Cut Giles Scroggins' Thread, or rather the Thread of Giles Scroggins' Life, that once and most completely establishes the wholesome moral as to the fearful uncertainty of all sublunary anticipations and stands forth the beautiful beacon to warn the overweening, worldly wise men, from their often too fondly cherished dreams of realizing, by their own means and appliances, the darling projects of their ambitious hopes, the immediate effect of the operation performed by fate's scissors, or rather by fate herself as she was the great and absolute disposer to whom the implement employed was but a matter of fancy, for had fate so chosen, a bucket, a boy knife, a brick bat, a black cap, 
or a box of patent pills, might, as well as her destructive shears, had made a tenant for a yawning grave of doom Giles Scroggins, we say. The immediate effect arising from this cutting cause was one in which both parties the living bride and defunct bridegroom were equally concerned, their lover's company partnership rendering each liable for the acts or accidents of the other, therefore as may be and we think is clearly established, under these circumstances, they could not be more right. There is something deliciously affecting in the beautiful drawing out of the last syllable. It seems like the lingering of the heart's best feelings upon the blighted prospects of its purest joys. The ceremony that would have completed the union of the loving maiden and admiring swain, blending, as it were, like the twin prongs of a brass-bound toasting fork, their interests in one common cause. The ceremony of love's concentration can never be performed, but the heart-feeling poet extends each tiny syllable even to its utmost stretch, that the tear-dropping reader may, while gulping down his sympathies, make at least a handsome mouthful of the word. We now approach, with considerable awe, a portion of our task to which we beg to call the undivided attention of our erudite readers. Upon referring to the original black-letter quarto, we find, after each particular sentence, the author introduces, with consummate tact, a line, meant, as we presume, as a kind of literary resting place, upon which the delighted mind might, in the sweet indulgence of repose, reflect with greater pleasure on the thrilling parts, made doubly thrilling by the poet's fire, the diversity of these, if we may so express them, camp schools of imagination, is worthy of remark, both as to their application and amplitude, for instance, after one line, and that if perused with attention, comparatively less abstruse than its fellows, the gifted poet satisfies himself with the insertion of three sonorous, but really simple syllables, they are invariably at follows, to Rolu, but when two lines of the poem burning with thought, bursting with action entrance by their sublimity the enraptured reader, greater time is given, and more extended accommodation for a mental sit-down is afforded in the elaborate and elongated composition of, whack, fold a riddle all today, these introductions are of a high class origin. Many professors of eminence have quarreled as to whether they were not the original of the Greek chorus, while others, of equal erudition, have as stoutly maintained, though closely approximating in character and purpose, they are not the originals, but imitations, and decidedly admirable ones, from those celebrated poets, a Mr. William Waters, a gentleman of immense travel, one who had left the burning zone of the Far East to visit the more chilling gales of a European climate a philosopher of the sect known as the Peripatetic, a devoted follower of the heathen nine, whose fostering care has ever been devoted to the tutelage of the professors of sweet sounds, and therefore Waters was a high authority, declared in the peculiar patois attendant upon the pronunciation of a foreign mode of speech that, to Rolu, was to catch him wind, and, whack, fold a riddle all today, to let him rosin up him fiddlestick, these deductions are practical, if not poetical, but these are but the emanations from the brain of one hundreds of other commentators differ from his view. The most erudite linguists are excessively puzzled as to the nation whose peculiar language has been resorted to for these singular and unequaled introductions. The Turolu has been given up in despair. The nearest solution was that of an eminent arithmetician, who conjectured from the word to Anglicy, to and the use of the four ciphers those immediately following the T and L that they were intended to convey some notion of the personal property of Giles Scroggins or Molly Brown he never made up his mind which of the two, and merely wanted the following marks, to render them plain, T-O to either shillings or pence and L-U, 
no pounds. This may or may not be right, but the research and ingenuity deserve the immortality we now confer upon it. The other line, the whack, full the riddle all the day, has, perhaps, given rise to far more controversy, with certainly less tangible and satisfactory results. The scene of the poem not being expressly stated in the original or early black letter translation, many persons whose love of country prompted their wishes had endeavored to attach a nationality to these Gordian knots of erudition, and Hibernian gentlemen of immense research the celebrated Darby Kelly has openly asserted the whole affair to be decidedly of Milesian origin, and, amid a vast number of corroborative circumstances, strenuously insists upon the solidity of his premises and deductions by triumphantly exclaiming, what, or who but an Irish poet and an Irish hero, would commence a matter of so much consequence with the soul-stirring, whack, adopted by the great author, and put into the mouth of his chosen hero, others again have supposed which is also far more improbable that much of the obscurity of the above passage has its origin from simple me-spelling on the part of the poet's amanuensis he taking the literal dictation, forgetting the sublime author was suffering from a cold in the head, which rendered the words in sound, riddle all the lay, whereas they would otherwise have been pronounced, riddle all the day, that being an absolute and positive allusion to the agricultural pursuits of Giles Scroggins, he being generally employed by his more wealthy master a great agrarian of those times in the manly though somewhat fatiguing occupation of, riddling all the day, an occupation which like this article was to be frequently resumed, a new theory of pockets, definition pocket, s the small bag inserted into clothes, walker a new edition, by hooky, we are great on the subject of pockets we acknowledge it we about, from our youth upwards, and we are venerable now, we have made them the object of a tiring research, analysis, and speculation, and if our exertions have occasionally involved us in contingent predicaments, or our zeal laid us open to conventional misconstructions, we console ourselves with Galileo and Tico Bray, who having, like us, discovered and arranged systems too large for the scope of the popular intellect, like us, became the martyrs of those great principles of science which they had immortalized themselves by.